are sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Read your Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. What up and shalom. Welcome to the Robin Caleb Show, the show where theology matters and scholarship counts. My name is Caleb Hag, and with me, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? How's it going, brother? The Hoff is in the house. Ha Hoff, the bite. The bite. <laughs> yeah. How you doing, brother? Why? Oh, I'm happy. Good. You should. I'm excited about. Can I say our interview that we did? Yes. Can you we can talk say. about that. Sure. I just am excited that our listeners get to uh, benefit like we did with our sit down chat with Dr. Chris Tilling. Yeah, so uh, those who might not know, and I don't think anyone really knows, basically what's going on is I am taking a vacation. Believe it or not, they're actually giving me time off. I'm taking a vacation uh, for just a couple of days in the middle of July, and uh, it just so happens that the time that we have booked at the Airbnb is over a Wednesday. And so just so that we didn't take more time off, since we've taken a lot of time off this in the past you know, what, two months? We took two weeks off in a row. That was, and Rob took three weeks off in a row. Uh, so, you know, we like to not leave you guys hanging. We, uh, we did an interview with Dr. Chris Tilling. He lives our, over. Our friends in the UK will. That's right. Will feel a little bit closer, I think, to us. That's right. That's right. Uh, Dr. Tilling lives uh, right outside of England. Outside, of <laughs> I mean, outside <laughs> on a boat. On a no, boat, yes, exactly. No, no, he lives outside of London. London, that's what Surrey. I meant. I'm sorry. Is it Surrey? He said yes. by the air, near near an airport. Yeah, the Surrey but airport. He, he works in at two different colleges in London. So, yeah, uh, and he's was, not not only is he, is he an excellent theological writer, uh, but man, is he fun to talk to. Yeah, it was it was just a really exciting interview. And we got all, to all be, around uh, off the off the recording. We got to meet his his little boy. Um, yeah, his son. Yeah. That yeah, was really good. So anyway, that'll air in the middle of uh, July. And it, it, you should be looking forward to it because even though, uh, you know, if you don't have a, th- if you're not theologically inclined in terms of reading. If you're theologically declined. There you go. Uh, then it's okay. Then his book might be a little bit over your head, but uh, he is just so easy to talk to. And uh he told some really great and funny stories. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to ruin it. I'm not going to talk about it. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, y- Yvonne, who's who's in the chat room, she says, yes, Surrey is very nice. Surrey County. Nice county, Surrey. Um, anyway, so, yeah, uh, look forward to that. Uh, it's it's going to be uh, – I'm, I'm excited for everyone else to hear it because uh, then we'll actually be able to talk about it. But, it, yeah, a good time. So if, if you hear things in the background uh, today, there is construction going out on outside my window. And uh, so you might hear some hammering 
some sawing and other things. It's not on our building. It's on the it's on the people's house behind us. Construction sounds. Yeah, and I'll tell you this. I don't know. I don't know if you realize this, but I've been at war for the past week. You heard it here first, folks. War. I have declared war officially on a uh, yellow jacket nest that has made it into my walls. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I gotta say it's been, uh, it's been an interesting battle. I've, uh, I've taken, uh, outdoor caulk and tried to fill in the holes that has not detoured them. I, uh, have sprayed enough poison, uh, to kill a small village, uh, that did detour them, but, uh, not enough to get rid of them. So now I have found a new foam that I've, I've climbed up onto a ladder gotten right up there at nighttime and just blasted it. So we'll see what happens today and tomorrow. Uh, hopefully, Lord willing, <laughs> uh, I will have eradicated the nest from my We will see walls. what the Lord decreed. That's exactly <laughs> right. Tomorrow. We'll see what, ha- see what God decreed from <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, Hey, you know, we've been talking, we've been talking about the doctrines of grace. If nobody can figure it out where this subject is so huge, uh, you know, it's hard to even make the show notes because there's so that I've got, I've been to so many different websites of, and, but really what we're doing is I've been reading out of a lot of these books. So there's not a whole lot of websites that I'm actually referencing. So come to us for book learning. <laughs> I don't know about that. I do not know about that. Uh, it's such a huge subject that it's hard to know even where to to put the uh, what to put in the notes because I don't think we're going to get to half of it. Yeah, I think at least every week we need to put like a red herring link, like a link to like like a couple good links, and then a link that is like bad scholarship, and then we have to let people vote on which which, which one, which is the. The mystery link. <laughs> I almost put in a huge co- a quote from Olson's theology today in the show notes, but I, I, yeah, I didn't know even where to start and where to end. Um, and then you know, there's only one link in your show notes, and to be honest with you, it's a link to to James White talking about. Let's see here. I think he talks about Hebrews two nine, and we could get to that if we wanted to. Uh, that verse says, but we do see him who was made for the for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Uh, and so Dr. James White exegetes this passage uh, quickly, uh, and I actually have a three-minute uh, three clip from him exegeting this passage. We can listen to it whenever we want to. Uh, but actually, I was thinking, and this this all has to do with a particular redemption, which is the next uh, the next letter in the in the tulip, you know, the, the tulip, what are those called? Not anagrams. Anyway. Um, however, I didn't know if we had really finished unconditional election or not. Now, we got a, we got a somewhat critical, we've had one critical comment, and when Did I say, we even start that? Yeah, we kind of touched on it. Did we? Okay, yeah, I don't well, we, we'll read it. We'll read it today, and then we, we can touch on it more, because we had some people uh, comments. Uh, Lois Morgan wanted to know more about, you know, she wanted us to touch more on uh, free will 
She says, I would like you to clarify the issue of will, capacity to choose, or even the responsibility to choose as compared to free will. You touched on it, but I think this terminology, yeah. So she wants us to touch on that more, and we will today. Um, So it's not just that, though. I got some kind of a noise going on in my headphones. Oh, well. Um, You still with me? You're you're chopping up here, brother. Testing. (laughs) I'm hardwired in. All right. Well, uh, hardwired to the interweb. Okay. Uh, anyway, so there's a lot of different ways that we can go with this because uh, unconditional election. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of this whole argument as well. Before we do that, should we start with reading about unconditional election? Sure. Let's okay. hear it. Okay. So as we remember, and this is a lot of this for everyone who's you know in the chat room, this is all review for you guys. And I apologize for the review, but we want to keep our new listeners up to uh, up to date with what's going on. So, you know, obviously, as as our listeners, our continued listeners will remember that the uh, up in up in uh, where was it Holland. Uh, you had the you had the Dutch confession, all this kind of stuff, and um, so th- the followers of Ar- Arminius came with their objections to uh, the, these confessions of faith, and uh, so they brought five of their objections, and then the Synod of Dort, the Synod of Dort, uh, got together and they reviewed these, and then they came up with their responses. What the responses are have essentially become what are commonly referred to as the five points of Calvinism. Uh, I don't like to refer to them as such. And actually, the person who wrote, I, I mean, it was somewhat acronym. There we go. Uh, uh, anyway, sorry. The 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 guys, the, the one person who wrote what I would consider somewhat of a criticism of our past few shows said, you know, what? why are you guys becoming the Calvinist show? You yeah. know, and uh, it's a good question. Uh, first of all, we've never claimed to be, quote unquote, Calvinists, and when we've used the word Calvinism or Calvinist, we've had to clarify. We don't agree with everything or uh, even remotely close to everything that John Calvin wrote or believed in terms of theology. I'm just stating this again so that people, I, I, you know, you have to keep saying these things so people get them. On the contrary, when I have used the word Calvinism or Calvinist, I'm usually referring to the five points of Calvin, which are also known as TULIP or the doctrines of grace. Anyway, so let's read first what the Synod uh, or what the uh, what the Arminians wrote uh, first about. And it was basically titled conditional election. They said God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon his foreseeing that they would respond to his will. He selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which God foresaw and upon which he based his choice was not given to the sinner by God. It was not created by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, but resulted solely from man's will. It was left entirely up to man to determine who would believe and therefore who would be elected for salvation. God chose those whom he knew would, of their own free will, choose Christ. Thus, the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Um, so this is what the the followers of Arminius wrote 
uh, in as a challenge to the the uh, Dutch Confession. Well, is, Caleb, is that a synopsis of, or is that literally like a translation of of Armenian position, or is that the author's synopsis of their position? That is a great. Uh, question. Let's read what he says. He says, in the chart which follows, the five points of Arminian, Arminianism rejected by the Synod and the five points of Calvinism set forth by the Synod are given side by side so that oh. it might be readily seen wherein and to what extent these two systems of doctrine differ. So I believe oh, that maybe the language might have been modernized. Now, I could be wrong, and maybe uh, maybe somebody can tell us if uh now i've i've looked these up they seem to be pretty uniform across the board in the things that i've with a little bit of wording changed here and there uh but i believe that this is basically what has been what was written by the two different groups so uh, then of course the uh the synod of dort came up with the unconditional election as opposed to conditional election and what the Synod of Dort came up with in response was this. God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith, repentance, etc. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. These acts are the result, not the cause, of God's choice. Election, therefore was not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality of, or act foreseen in man. Those whom God's sovereignty elected, sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. Now, of course, what would the, uh, the, person, the Arminian, or however you want to say that, what would the response be? I think that the average response is, well, uh, then God predestined some to hell. And this is uh, what we talked about in length last, last week, correct? Does God predestine yeah. some to hell? And I think one hell? of the foundational, if we were to say, like, principles of Arminian viewpoint, according to my understanding, is... God's universal desire for, for God's desire for universal salva salvation, right? That that all yeah. yes, God intends everyone to be saved. So because they believe and they believe that God is good, and they their understanding of goodness and God being good and love um, means God desires everybody to be saved, and therefore. The very thought of uh, some people who uh, God knew would would be sinners and you know go to hell um, that he basically by not choosing them unchose them is doesn't fit with their picture it, it's, do I have that right, Caleb? Well, I think what you're touching on here is actually particular redemption, which would be yeah. the uh, the P in in that's, tulip. Right, that's like next week or whatever. But no, it's not. It, actually, we can touch on it. And actually, one of the things I wanted to do this week was look at Second Peter three nine, so we can exegete that a little bit if we ever get to it. 
Um, and this, I'll read it now just so that people can look forward to. Uh, it says, The Lord is not slow to, about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward uh, you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That seems like a pretty strong argument and one of the verses that many Arminians uh, or those who hold to Arminian theology go to. Anyway, so first let's talk a little bit about uh, free will because it seems to me, now I wanted to read this last week and I didn't because we've been talking about the Christian debate uh, in the past couple of weeks. However, what I hold here in my hands is the Sifra to Deuteronomy. Now, let's see here. Let me go to my chart. Sifra to Deuteronomy traditionally is said to have been written uh, 280 to 320 CE. Whether or not that's an accurate date, I don't necessarily agree with that date. However, that is the traditional date of the Sifra to Deuteronomy. Now, what do we have here? So this is basically what's going on during this time. You have Pelagius, you have Arminia, uh, you have Augustine uh, putting forward these arguments. So Augustine is posing uh, arguments for the sovereign, the doctrines of, of grace. Essentially, is is what he's doing. Uh, he's and he's doing this from Romans and other places. You have Pelagius coming along, rejecting all this. Okay, and so now you have uh, Pelagianism starting to grow out of this. At the same time, within the rabbinical circles, what we have is we have them basically having the exact same conversation in a little bit different way. So this is what the Sifra to Deuteronomy says. Another teaching concerning the phrase, he said, the Lord came from Sinai. When the omnipresent appeared to give the Torah to Israel, it was not to Israel alone that he revealed himself, but to every nation. First of all, he came to the children of Esau. He said to them, will you accept the Torah? They said to him, what is written in it? He said to them, you shall not murder. They said to him, the very being of those men, namely us and of their father is to murder for it is said, but the hands are the hands of Esau by your sword, you shall live. So he went to the children of Ammon and Moab and said to them, will you accept the Torah? They said to him, what is written in it? He said to them, you shall not commit adultery. They said to him, the very, the very essence of fornication belongs to them or us, for it is said, thus were both the daughters of Lot with child by their fathers. So he went to the children of Ishmael and said to them, will you accept the Torah? They said to him, what is written in it? He said to them, you shall not steal. They said to him, the very essence of our father is thievery, as it is said, and he shall be a wild ass of a man. And so it went. He went to every nation asking them, will you accept the Torah? For so it is said, all the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. Might one suppose that they listened and accepted the Torah? Scripture says, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury upon the nations because they did not listen. And it is not enough for them that they did not listen, but even the seven religious duties that the children of Noah indeed accepted upon themselves, they could not uphold before breaking them. When the Holy One, blessed be he, saw that, uh, saw that that is how things were, to, uh, he gave them to Israel. The matter may be compared to the case of a person who sent his uh, ass and dog to the... Fin okay, so basically that's basically the, the end of it. So the point is, and what we have from the Sifra of Deuteronomy is, the rabbis seem to be having the exact same conversation during the exact same historical time that... You have uh, Augustine and Pelagius having these kind of 
battles within the theological realm. And that is, finally, uh, Israel, it, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, Rob, because you're the rabbinics guy, but it seems to me that, that Judaism accepted a God-chose-us theology up until this point. God chose us. He brought us you out mean, of it. You mean uh, un- like an unconditional Like we didn't election. have any—yeah, we didn't have anything to do with it. We were in Israel. God reached in with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then what happened? He brings us out. He gives us the Torah, all these things. And then right around the time that you have the Augustinian debates and the Pelagius, uh, you know, thing going on, you have the rabbis, I mean, honestly, maybe responding to or creating their own theological story to uphold one side of it, which is what now— we have, What we have in this before this, if, there, if there's a phase, like in the Second Temple period, you have different groups— saying we represent the true elect. Yes. Right? In other words, you have competition between communities that have different ways of life. They're all looking at basically the same scriptures, and they're saying, no, we're the elect, and you can tell we're the elect by, you know, by what we do, right? Uh, And then what we have here, this is a new phase. Like you pointed out, there seems to be the larger conversation going on. People are asking, wait a minute. Do I choose, you know, and I, I wonder if, it see, if the seeds of this were in the Second Temple, late Second Temple period, because um, Josephus, we've talked about this before, Josephus talks about how he goes to the different, he goes sect shopping, basically. He's like, I'm going to go hang out with the Sadducees for a while, I'm going to like learn their ways, and I'm going to go hang out with, he hangs out with like three or four different groups to evaluate which one he thinks is the best. So now sure. it's now... It's very individualistic. Now, he's writing in the 90s, so the temple's already been wiped out for maybe 10, 20 years by then. And he's writing, saying, um, and it's very much about the individual choosing. I chose. I studied it out. I decided what is best. Um, but, but don't you have, you have the same thing going on with Paul, though, right? I mean, Paul talking to the Galatians, it seems like he's talking about this, and I know that we've, we can mince words here, but this maybe conversion or becoming, you know, becoming part of the fold, however you want to say that, being circumcised, going through the ritual of circumcision. And it's not about this ritual, you know, it's not about this man-made ritual or this, this conversion process, but rather it's about true faith in the Messiah Yeshua. So what I hear you saying is, is that Judaism had this idea of, okay, we're the elect, God chose us. And then you have Yeshua well, and his... we have different groups promoting that idea. Okay, right? but the, the... De- the Dead Sea Scroll group. If 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 the Galatian church, just to call that, lived near Qumran, Paul's letter would have sounded very different <laughs> than if the Galatian church was next to, um, you know, a, a strict Pharisaic community. Okay, but still, the point is, is that you have this idea of we're the elect. We're in because we're the elect. We've right. been and you chosen. Want to become, and then you, your election is confirmed when you take on the, the way of life of that community with all its oaths. And, and that's what we call works of the law, uh, is that it's, it's not Torah commandments. It's how that community defines how do you know if you're elect or not, yeah, if you are but right, then, okay. right. But yeah, that's different than what we have here in, in Sifre to Deuteronomy and in but my point, is, my point is this, is that you have, you have like this idea of if you're born into it, if you're born into the bloodline, you know, first century Judaism basically, and even up into today, if you're born in, into the bloodline, if you're Jewish, you're in. 
you've been chosen. But right. and we, we already have that, right, in, in the Gospels where John the Baptist is preaching. Yeah, but then, then you says, have— don't say we have Abraham as our father. He's not going to let that uh, be the quality. He's challenging them at that core place. The sure, axe is at the root of the tree. It's about repentance and fruitfulness, right? And, yeah, but, but then you have Paul doing the same thing, right? Not all who are descended yeah, right, from right, Abraham, right. Or, you know. And, so you have, you have the, these uh, messianics, lack of a better word, Christians, who are now coming out of this new sect of this right. Rabbi Yeshua. They're basically. John the Baptist, let me finish, if I could just interrupt you. Yes, go for it. <laughs> I'm sorry, Caleb. If John the Baptist and Paul, if I could squeeze one more point in, they're preaching. They believe in the effective preaching, preaching the gospel, preach repentance, um, and forgiveness of sins through Yeshua, that that is an effective word. Like God produces fruit. It's like seed going out there, and it'll produce fruit. But they already know that not everybody's going to believe. Because Yeshua says, well, well, this is like, you know, I speak in parables, but to you I'll give you the inside deal. You know, some of it's going to be like falling on the rock. Some of it's going to be falling among the, the thorns. But there will be some that will be good fruit. It's like he's already training them to realize that while they're preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins in, in Yeshua's name, that not everybody's going to receive. But, but, it's, but they're not going out choosing people, right? It's, it, they, the, the philosophy, if you want to use that word, or the underlying theological conviction, better, is that God is going to give new life to whom he will, and the tra- it, it breaks down are traditional borders of quote Jew, Samaritan, Greek, yeah, Roman, exactly, Egyptian, and it's and God's gonna it, He totally wipes out those man-made categories and prejudices, and will bring fruit in all those places according to His will. Yeah, and then by the time you get to Sifra of Deuteronomy, what they're saying is, yeah, okay, well, it's not it's not just that God chose us; we accepted. We've you know we've done something too. We like they they basically changed the narrative a bit. They have to. Yeah, they're, they're saying it's, born, they're, it's about being born from above. It's not about being... No, no, no. What I'm saying is by the time you have Sifra to Deuteronomy, what you have is you have the rabbis changing the narrative because... because oh, Christ- yeah, yeah. That story is... There's nothing in Torah about... <laughs> you know, yeah. So they first went to the children it's, it's, of, it's, of Esau. Yeah, it's like, it, but, but my point is, is that it's like, they're, it's like they're responding now to to what Paul and John have already written. You know, it's like right. the, the, the disciples kind of, and Paul kind of like change the narrative and say, no, 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 it, it's not about that. And, you know, they're given all this, this exegesis on different parts of Scripture and whatnot. And so the rabbis have to respond. What do they do? They come out with this story about, okay, well, it's not just that we were chosen. It's that we chose God, and you didn't. And that's the point. You keep saying that you're, you know, it's, it's not about bloodline, but it is because we chose God, and you guys said no. So you're at fault. So it's kind of this... It's kind of this new narrative. Anyway, okay. So Philip makes a good point. And, you know, I've noticed this too. And this is not to put anybody down, especially not Philip in the, in the chat room. A lot of people say that, that uh, they believe in both. You know, they see points of both, Arminianism versus Calvinism. And I've said that myself. However, I think that for myself personally, and this, once again, I'm sure that uh, people are much well-learned 
more well-learned than I am on these subjects. I'm learning as I'm going along here in these, uh, in these shows. So I'm sure that people have this figured out a lot better than I do. But what I'm realizing, it, my thought of, yes, Arminian theology and Calvinistic theology, if we can put those labels on them, uh, both, there's truth to both of them. What I'm realizing is, is the more I study Calvinistic theology, or the doctrines of grace, rather, the more I'm realizing that, no, what I thought was Arminian theology is actually summed up within the doctrines of grace. Okay, and so let me explain a little bit about what I mean. And actually, Rob, you said that somebody had some criticism or a question that they posed to you about what I what I believe. Oh, yeah. Well, it was quite a, a big email. Um I won't mention the person by name, but they are listener, faithful listener, good guy. But he he made the point. He thought he understood you to be saying that all everything has been locked down since the beginning of creation. Not a quote of you, but um, he says his point is that not everything has been locked down since the beginning of creation. Um, he heard your statement. Uh, now that was a couple of weeks ago, two shows ago, I think was to the effect of, quote, God never changes, so it all has to be locked down. So it has to all be locked down. So um, I think that what, what I'm understanding, and he disagrees with that. He doesn't think everything is locked down. I think, uh, I think this listener is more in line with what you were talking about last week. So granted, this email was from two weeks ago, was the idea of a script, right? Like you have... Um, some basic uh, uh, narration points, or for you and I in the music world, a a standard chord chart. Let's say chart of a, chord, a standard. It's got the basic chord changes. It has a, it has the head or the melody line. But when you give that to a band, a jazz group that is very skilled in uh, improvisation, they're going to take that and you know. The song will be recognizable to an astute ear, but the, never will there be a repetitive or a, a performance that's exactly like a prior performance, right? Every performance will be, will be different because there's room for, infer, for, uh, for improvisation. However, there's critical chord and melody uh, combinations that make it distinctly this song and not some other song. So I think what his point is is that uh, election is more like that. Election is more like a jazz standard, um, and not, <coughs> let's say, Mozart's. You know, uh, more like a, more like work. a jazz standard. Wow. All right. No, I like that. I actually. Well, I, I'm just. I, no, I, I agree with. I agree with you. So, uh, and this is actually one of the things yeah, I wanted. I, think I one wanted of the to... points was the idea of when I get up in the morning, I'm going to have. Am I going to have? coffee or orange juice first or something or am I going to have this for cereal or I'm going to have a banana that were those things decreed all, all from the foundation of the world and that I really become a robot I think that's a fear that you hear from people who are hesitant about what what their idea of Calvinism is am yeah. I am I yeah so so the idea of being a robot I think that if we were robots then we'd never sin right if God just told us this is what you do, then 
And so but that's but that's the thing. If if God decreed <laughs> that you are going to be a sinful robot, and then I'm going to punish you for it. Yeah, they so, they see that as cruelty, and they don't want to worship that. Okay, that. this is this is actually what I was trying to get to last week that we never really got to. So I have two two separate quotes here. This from the uh, Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. This is chapter three. Okay, the first point in chapter three, first and second point in chapter three. And this is older English. This is the original, I believe. God hath decreed himself from all eternity by those most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor hath fellowship with any therein. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of of second causes taken away, but rather established, in which appears his wisdom is disposing all things and power and faithfulness in accomplishing his decree. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it, it as future or at as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. In other words, let me try to put this into modern English uh, myself. In other words, God is not the author of sin. Do humans sin? Do we sin? Obviously we do. Does God make us or force us to sin? Does he decree, decree us to sin? I would say no, and I think that the the Calvinistic... Uh, maybe that's the wrong word, the doctrinal uh, standpoint of the 1689 Baptist Confession, along with Calvinism in general, the five points of Calvinism, would say that God does not decree us to sin. So uh, I want to go now to For Calvinism by Michael Horton. He has this to say about it. Is God the author of sin? And this speaks to the entire point. In other words, is everything predestined? God certainly lives outside of time. Does he see what's happening? And this might be where Philip is, where I would side with Philip. In other words, we see this idea from Arminianism that God lives outside of time. He sees what we're going to do. And therefore, is everything decreed? Yes. Did he, you know, but yes and no. It's kind of this yes and no. And I think that this, this is where we see some overlap, kind of, of Arminianism and Calvinism. But this from uh, this from Michael Horton, and I think he places this into a realm that I I agree with. He says, as the quote as the quote earlier from the Canons of Dort attests, Calvinism, in its official expression, attributes original sin to the trans- transgression of Adam by his own free will. It is not God's sovereignty that holds human freedom in bondage, but sin. Here too, confessional. Reformed theology is obliged to hold together two apparently conflicting theses or theses. Sorry, God has decreed whatever comes to pass, yet this is in no way infringed on creaturely freedom. It would be easier, of course, for finite intellects to resolve this dilemma in the direction of either human autonomy or fatalism, but the Bible does not allow these options. It is a paradox for the human mind. And it will remain so even in glory. God is not the author of sin since he does not directly cause or bring it about. Uh, I mean, I can go on, but I think, you know, I think his point is very well taken. I will go on a little bit here. I have about two more paragraphs. 
That is, God does not make, create, or co coerce creatures toward evil. This conclusion, in fact, Calvin regards as blasphemy. At the same time, the fall did not catch God by surprise. From all eternity, God had elected a people from the human race in Christ for eternal life. The important thing for Calvin is simply to affirm simultaneously that God is neither the author nor the passive victim of creaturely aggression. He, he cautions, and this is a quote from Calvin, let no one grumble here that God could have provided better for our salvation if he had forestalled Adam's fall. Pious minds ought to loathe this objection because it manifests ordinance cura uh, inordinate curiosity. Let us accordingly remember to impute our ruin to depravity of nature in order that we may not accuse God himself, the author of nature. End quote. In fact, we only call this corruption natural in order that no man may think that anyone obtains it through bad conduct, since it holds all men fast by hereditary right. Thus, it is not nature itself, but its corruption that is in view in the idea of total depravity. <clears throat> so I understand what this, uh, the criticism that, the, that this person is giving. But I, I, I have to hold in tension the idea that God has, sees everything outside of time. So does he know what I will choose? I would have to say yes. At the same time, has God decreed, decreed me to sin? Do I have choice? And this goes back to Lois's question. The answer is yes. I have choice. I'm the one who sins. God does not make me sin. So do I have will? Yes, I have will. Do I have choice? Yes, I have choice. Is it free will? The answer is no, it is not free will. In other words, if we had free will, that would mean that it was unencumbered. That would mean that there would be no outside influence that, because if there's outside influence to sway us one way or the other, then it's no longer free. It is encumbered will. And so the point of, the idea of free will versus will is, and I'll go back to my same analogy, which I use every time. I was born to Tim and Paulette Haig in Tacoma, Washington in 1981. So now we have time, we have geography, and we have family status. I was born a white male. So now we have gender and we have, uh, you know, ethnicity as well. And I was born to a middle-class family Gro growing up in the north end of Tacoma, which is a upper – what has become now an upper-class part of Tacoma, Washington. Now, the question is, is does any of that affect who I am and my life <clears> – <throat> my worldview, rather, my worldview? And I would say it does. Those things affect – for instance – now let's take somebody else. If a uh, black African female is raised in, uh, you know, the Congo uh, in war-torn times, uh, you know, born at a different time uh, to Muslim parents, has all of these factors encroached upon what this person might choose and their, their worldview? I would say, yes, all these things can be used by God to affect the will. 
and therefore it's not free will anymore. It's encroached upon will. From we should, yeah. And here's another way to approach it because we, again, we get to terms like what do we mean by free? What do we mean by will? That's why it's difficult to talk about free will because there's no word in the Bible, free will, that we can go look up and see how it's used. We can look at the word freedom in the Bible, eleutheria in the, in the apostolic writings, and the verb to free, to set free, consistently across the board, it's in distinction to slavery. So freedom and slavery, you've been freed from slavery. Freedom and slavery go together. So we have to, if we think of freedom, we got to think of it in terms of its opposite, slavery. And it has to do with slavery to sin. So the, generally, the way that in the apostolic writings, the word freedom is used, it's only in Messiah Yeshua do you have freedom. And the freedom you have is freedom from sin, but now you're becoming slaves again. You just have a new, ma- you have a new master. So, but you're you're free from sin, and that's only in Messiah Yeshua. The other word that we can look up is the word to choose, the verb to choose, or where we get the word elect. And it's, I, I, I did that this morning. I went through and looked at all the times where we have the verb to choose, and there's about 20 occurrences, and I think like 18 of them, it is God doing the choosing. And then the, there's just the noun, the elect, the ele- and it's always the elect of God. It's those whom God has chosen. Um, there was one place that I found that it was a person choosing is, because Yeshua chooses his apostles, right? Um, it's where Mary and Martha, right, uh, are in, and Mary's sitting at Yeshua's feet. And Martha comes up and says, don't you care? She's not helping, you know. And he, and he says that she has chosen what is good. And it will not be taken from her. So there's one example where it's a people choosing. And then Luke, uh, Luke in the next chapter, so that's Luke 9. In Luke 10, he tells about uh, the hypocrites who choose places of honor. Like in the in the synagogues, etc. In other words, they want to be seen by others, and that's the choice they're making. But everywhere else, as far as I could see, is that it's God slash Yeshua doing the choosing. Okay, so Robert has a great question. He says, based on the definition of free will, on that definition, the definition I gave of free will, isn't encumbered will different from total depravity? And I would say that total depravity... So, in other words, yes, we. Once again, it's not free. Total depravity. Uh, total depravity makes it so that uh, we will. Once again, our will is encumbered, and this is one of the debates that went on uh, amongst Arminians against Calvinists. Is that if your if your will is encumbered, and this is where Pelagianism come, came from. The idea, the whole, the whole argument of Pelagius was: yes, if we are encumbered by by uh, sin, original sin, then our will is not our will is not free; it's encroached upon. Luther makes this very clear in in his uh, in his uh, opening statements. Uh, I think it's within the first thirty pages. 
of his book on uh, the bondage of the will. You know, he's talking about that we have absolutely no choice and nothing to do with our salvation. We have no access to God, to a holy God. Exactly, and he does that through. That, that's what total depravity is. <clears throat> that's what total depravity is. And and the and the the Pelagius and them said, no, no, no. There's no such thing as original sin. It doesn't pass down from. You know, we're not the elect or the. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Each human is born good and free, spotless, ready to go. There's no such thing as original sin. And a person's sin, that is, i.e. Adam's, Adam's sin, you know, a person can't be judged for sin of, their, of someone else. And th- this is where they get the idea of, you know, there's no such thing as original sin. But the, but the point is, is that if that's the case, then Yeshua's atonement could not be accounted to us either. And this is where Paul, you know, Paul waxes on this in, what is it, Romans 6? Or is it Romans 5? Anyway, he, he talks about through one man, sin entered the world, right? Um, so uh, Robert says, uh, encroached upon is different than totally unable, once and okay, if you want to talk about two separate things, the idea is uh, that yes, even no matter what, the idea of free will is not a thing. The ability to choose is encroached upon. There's no such thing as free will. The only time that we had free will was in the garden. Adam and Eve were the only people who had free will, totally unencumbered will. They weren't. They weren't. Uh, they weren't encumbered by sin. They weren't encumbered by anything else. Geography didn't have anything to do with it. They were in the garden, right? They weren't born to parents in a specific time or anything. It was just free. Everything was let go. For free. It was free will. But as soon as the sin, as soon as sin came into the world, and we have, uh, we have you know original sin, which it's been titled then all of a sudden you do have this encroachment on the will. And not only that, but everything else, everything else around us now uh, steers our will. And don't and, and d- diminishing access to God is what happens over time. And don't we think that God allows uh, those, those things to... Look, uh, one thing that I can tell you about myself is that coming to, to have a true, strong relationship with the Almighty was done, uh, God used my Father. You know, I, I am a believer because God used my father to, uh, to instill certain things into my mind and heart. Now, he used other things. He used uh, other people and other, other means to bring me uh, to have a true, strong relationship with the Almighty. But the, uh, the idea that my father, being born to my father, didn't have some influence into my faith today, uh, I just, I would reject that. So God used my father to be able to bring me to himself. So the so being born to my father was not my choice. I didn't have anything to do with that. However, it certainly encroached on my will. You with me? <laughs> uh, There's just good good discussion. The yeah, idea the, is, the, the chat room is going going wild. How do we know that 
uh, Robert's got a great point. How do we know that Adam and Eve, there's no verse that says, and Adam and Eve were un- unencumbered in all their will, right? That's, uh, he's got a good point. That's fair. I, my clarification, Caleb, I'd like to hear yours. My idea is that they had access to God. There was no sin barrier between them and God. The relationship was as it was supposed to be. Yeah, there was, and so that's what I mean by unencumbered, uh, uh, meaning unencumbered with respect to access to our Creator and, and rela- re- right relationship with our Creator. That's I think we should clarify. Yeah, Holy, holiness cannot exist with unho- like one hundred percent pure holiness, which i.e. God cannot. The way I think about it, at least, cannot exist with, and I think this is the gospel message cannot exist with unholiness. If something's infinitely holy, you can't have unholiness with it. And this and yet God and that's how God is dwelling with Adam and Eve. They're not they're not uh, marked with sin. There's no unholiness there until they bring unholiness into the relationship and then they have to be cast out. And then the whole gospel message is try is the is bringing the elect back into that unencumbered relationship with with the Almighty. There's a good passage, Isaiah 59, 2. Your iniquities have uh, made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That's from Isaiah 59. So anyway, I wanted to move on. I think that we've talked enough about... Uh, Conditional and unconditional election, which is number two. Should we start the third one and and then uh, we can stop whenever we want to, but we can start the third one so that we can, you know, for those of you who are are, uh, tired of our look at uh, the doctrines of grace and and, uh, wishing that we'd move on, well, we will move on. But at the same time, uh, this, I think this is a very important issue and it's an important issue for several reasons. Number one, I think that most people, there are people in the Messianic slash Hebrew Roots movement who certainly have done uh, due diligence in their study. I think Philip is probably a good example in our chat room. It sounds like Robert has a, a fairly good handle on... on uh, I think everybody in our chat room has like... Yeah. They, they, serious. We got uh, some smart people out there. Yeah. But when you look at the teachers, when you look at the teachers in the Messianic slash Hebrew Roots movement, when they try to talk about these things, it's like they're totally in the dark. It's like they, they don't have any clue about what's going on. And so this is more of, a, of an exploration to clarify not only for ourselves, but also for, pe- for people in this movement to try to give some understanding about whether you agree with it or not. That, that's not the point. We're, you know, I'm not trying to uh, – I don't think that I'm going to have this max, mass exodus from people uh, in the Arminian Hebrew roots movement into the – Calvinistic understanding or the doctrines of grace understanding in the, you know, it's not going to, I'm not going to, we're not here to convert a bunch of people over to this, this idea. However, coming from the standpoint that we come from, which is that we believe in the doctrines of grace, we're trying to present how we see Arminianism and Arminian theology and how we see uh, the doctrines of grace and explore what traditionally has been meant by these different terms and see where we agree and disagree. Caleb, but one more question on before we go to L. <clears throat> so unconditional election. If I asked you, I said, Caleb, was God obligated to save anybody? No, absolutely not. And I think I think Romans nine is is uh, pretty clear about that. So, so God 
was not obligated to to give salvation to give the gift of salvation to anybody so when he chooses when he calls the elect with an effective call do those who remain unchosen do they have a complaint against him no and i would even say that if for calling him unjust for not for choosing other people but not them let's pretend yeah. that, that god only saved one, that god only had one person who was elect out of all of the sinners even if he didn't have any but let's pretend that there was only one could we still say that god was fully and totally gracious and the answer is yes paul yeah, talks yeah. paul talks yeah. about this in in romans he says that he he has chosen you know i'm going to i'm going to botch it if i try to uh, if i well anyway basically he talks about how he's you know, and we looked at the passage last week about uh, creating vessels for wrath. That's what, when I read the Against Calvinism book, uh, forgive me, I forgot the author. Uh, With, uh, who is that? Uh, <laughs> no. Olson. 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 I, now, I need to go through and see if he addresses that verse specifically. However... It seems like what I get from Olson is he says, I cannot worship that God. I cannot worship a God who, because he, he says at some point in the book that a student asked him, Mr. Olson, if, you, if God gave you a special revelation and showed you that, in fact, um, that what we call Calvinist perspective in this manner is true, would you still worship him? And his answer was no. No, yeah. I could not worship a God. But then I really, and I need to go back now, now that we've talked about that, uh, Vessels of Wrath, because I, I didn't uh, see if he had addressed that uh, passage. Um, yeah, interesting. All right. Okay, so I actually, now that you've brought up Olson, and there, you know, there's so much going on in the chat room right now, I want to respond to all of it, but... Uh, we, <laughs> uh, you know, Robert, man, you got really good, you got really good points, man. I, I, I applaud Robert once again. I, I feel like we do that every, every week, but, um, I applaud Robert for, uh, for really bringing out the boxing gloves in the chat room. He's, he's, he's holding the line for any Arminians out there and he's, you know, he's got some really, really good, good points. And it's, it's very nice having him in the chat room because it brings a, a very fresh and, and a good perspective. Okay. I want to go to Olson though. Ol since we brought up Olson, he seems to be like the, I, I could be wrong about this, but from what I've read, everybody references Olson. It's like when we're talking about Trinitarian doctrine. As a matter of fact, I think they're called, well, Olsonism now. It's Olsonism. <laughs> Are you an Olsonist? Yeah, there you go. But when we're talking about Trinitarian doctrine, who do they go to? They go to Bauckham and uh, and Hurtado. Those are the two like forerunners of Trinitarian theology. When we're talking about Arminian and theology, and, yeah, no doubt. Uh, and when you are talking about Arminian theology, it, like Olson is the one that everybody goes to. So this from Ol Olson's fourth chapter, Olson's Arminian theology. Uh, chapter four, page 101. Now, this is, I got to disagree with him on this. And this actually, uh, from what we've been reading, the doctrines that were set forth by the followers followers of Arminius to the uh, the Dutch confession and these kind of things, okay? Um, 
I think they disagree with Olsen on this. I could be wrong. Listen to it for yourself and listen to what, and t- tell me what you think. Why, this is a quote. Why do Arminians object to, to belief that God controls human decisions and actions by his ordaining power? First, let's be clear about the re- reasons Arminians do not use uh, in objecting to this deterministic belief. It is not because they are charmed by some modern commitment to humanistic freedom. There were Arminians before the rise of modernity and the Enlightenment, and there were believers in incompatibilistic free will long before Arminius. The early Greek church fathers believed in freedom of the will and rejected determinism of any kind. Pardon me. Second, it is not because they do not believe in God's ordaining power. Real Arminians have always believed God ordains and even controls many things in history. They affirm God. Okay, and and I want to stop there for just a second. One of the problems with with Olson here is that, and I agree with James White on this, if you really want to take Arminianism and what he just said to its full extent, then Arminianism would have to believe in open theism. How can God, if God has not preordained everything or preordained, uh, you know, his elect, let's, you know, I want to be careful because of the, the email that you brought up earlier, Rob. Uh, so I, I, I want to be clear on this. If God has not preordained his elect and he has not preordained things, then how is there prophecy? How could, how could his promise of the Messiah being crucified be true? If everyone has complete and total free will. So that I don't understand about what Olson is saying. Anyway, let's keep going. They affirm God's freedom and omnipotence. If God chose to control even hu- every human decision and action, he could do it. Rather, the real reason Arminians reject divine control of every human choice and action is that this would make God the author of sin and evil. For Arminians, this makes God at least morally ambiguous and at worst, the only sinner. Arminians acknowledge that Calvinists do not claim that God is morally ambiguous or evil. Some, however, do believe that God is the author of sin and evil. That is true. There are uh, Calvinists, and we were talking about this right before we came on air. Rob was asking if there was a difference between high Calvinism and hyper Calvinism. I haven't been able to find that. I do... I believe that uh, hyper-Calvinism, please correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure that someone in the, uh, in the chat room could probably enlighten us both on this. I believe that hyper-Calvinism usually has to do with uh, evangelism. In other words, hyper-Calvinism, from what I understand it to be, and I once again could be completely wrong on this, from my understanding, hyper-Calvinism has to do with the idea that if everything's preordained, and God's elect are preordained, and, and then we don't really have to evangelize. We don't need to go out and evangelize. We don't have to do any of that because it's all preordained anyway. So evangelism can be thrown to the wayside. That's what I have understood hyper-Calvinism to be. I could be wrong on that. So um, now if there's high Calvinism is different. In other words, God preordains every single action that we do. I'm not aware of that, uh, but I'm please. Someone send us some uh, info on that. Now, you were saying, though, Rob, jump in here. You were saying that Michael Horton actually talks about that a bit in his book. I haven't, you know, I'm such a slow reader and I got like five books going at the same time. I haven't gotten very far in this. I'm only on page 49. Uh, So tell me what you found in, in Horton's book. 
I'm, I've actually, well, he's got there on page, what is between 48, 49, is God the author of sin. Yeah, which I read. Yeah. Um, so, and, and obviously the answer is, is no. Um, the, the idea is that we can't, we, we can't know. I mean, there's, there, there's, um, there's a limit to our ability to know anything, right? If we want to say God is good, like the Arminians want to say, and what they mean by that is by good and loving, that means it would be a stain on God's moral character as good and loving God to predestine in, to not choose some people by, by means choosing them to, for destruction. That that would be, to, to make that assertion would be to stain God's character. And that's a, a, a very big problem in the hearts of someone who's going to cling to an Arminian view against what they understand Calvinism to be, is on that point. But uh, I don't believe that. Um, I don't believe... Uh, well, let me, let me clarify. I, I am limited in my knowledge of what is good. The only knowledge of what is good is my prayer that God will show me what is good in his eyes and that I'm trusting that in his revealed word we are to grow in discernment between good and evil. But I don't believe that I, just from the get-go, come to any decision, to any choice in life, and I um, just have it all sorted out. I know what's good and what's evil, like right off the bat. I, that my life is not that way. Um, and I don't think most humans, you know, they might think that they have do what's right in their own eyes, and they might think it's right, and they might think it's good, but what we have from the, from the beginning, even before they ate the fruit, the, when it says, and he saw that it was good, right? We saw that all in Genesis 1. God saw that it was tov. It was tov. It was tov several times. Then in Genesis, uh, the next time that phrase, ki tov, was when Eve looked at the tree after she's already been talking with the serpent, and it says she saw that it, it was good. And it saw that it was good. The same phrase but, but the reader, we know, we're like, no, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it, right? I mean, if we're following <laughs> Stop! Along, go, we're don't don't go up the stairs. Go down the <laughs> stairs. Out the front door. <laughs> we're saying, not good. Right? We're saying, Eve, not good. Not good. But she sees it's good. She's already being drawn in, and she's not running to the Lord. She's not even talking to Adam. She's not running to the Lord. Say, Lord, what's going on here? This, uh, this other voice, this snake is talking to me, telling me contrary to what you told me. We don't see that. It just goes, and the spiral goes down. But we see that it's what she sees as good is not according to the way God defined what is good. And, and I see that as a, a little hint at our, that what we call the encumbered will, the, the enslaved will, bondage of the will, whatever you want to call it, that we are corrupted. Our, our very ability to make clear, rational judgments is encumbered. Um, and we can't, uh, we uh, have the mix of good and evil together. 
That's that's my thought. And so when we when we have a big picture, back to the Armenian idea of, well, I'm going to paint a big picture of a good and loving God, and then anything in the Bible that, or any Calvinist that says something that I think stains that image of who I think God is, therefore I can't worship that God, I think that's a problematic path to go down. Um, and, and I think we get, from my view, we get to what Paul says in the middle of Romans. He says, who are you to talk about God? His ways are unfathomable. Unfathomable. <laughs> uh, they're beyond understanding. Uh, we, we, we are growing more and more into the image of Yeshua, those who are called in Yeshua. Our minds are renewed. We die to the ways of the flesh. We participate more and more in the joy of the resurrection life of Yeshua. And that means we are being discipled. That means we're being disciplined. And what I thought was good 10 years ago, what I thought was good 20 years ago, is not the same thing as what I think is good today. And I hope that in 10, 20 years, should the Lord tarry, that my discernment between good and evil would even be more sharp. Um, but I'm not prepared to, to paint a picture and say, oh, this is what a good and loving God must always be. Um, if, if I have to look at passages like Romans 9 and somehow that not square, it has to square. At some point, I have to square with the idea that there's a limit to my knowledge. Back to the Deuteronomy 29, 29. The hidden things belong to the Lord. But the revealed things belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the things in the Torah. In other words, God has revealed himself, with, first with Scripture, then in the flesh, in Yeshua. And we have the testimony of the apostles. We have the early letters to the early churches, etc. That's what is revealed of God, and that's the core of our faith. There are things that are still hidden from us. And I have to understand that God's judgment, that God is a just judge, that his judgment is good and true, and that he has elected people. The scripture's clear. So somehow this all has to work together. And the fact that he has elected people to salvation does not mean that people he did not elect are entitled to it or have a, a legal claim against him uh, as the cause of their sin. Like uh, Anyway, I'm waxing really long on this. <laughs> You're good. Um, you know, the, like I said, so I want to just touch real quick on, on Olson's statement here. So what Olson says, from what I read, it seems like what Olson is saying is, look, <clears throat> the, real, the real issue here is actually that Calvinists believe you know, uh, if we take Calvinism to its uh, end, end all be all, then, um, you know, uh, then God's the author of sin. You know, I would, I would fully reject that. I think that... Um, and they call him a monster. That God would be... Like, they, yeah. So, but, the, but I think uh, Michael Horton rejects that. I think that the um, Synod of Dort rejected that. The Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689 rejected that. And I think most, maybe not all... Most Calvinists today would reject that as well. Um, so now, once again, I haven't read um, Dr. Olson's entire book here, so I, I need to give him uh, some some leeway since uh, I haven't 
I haven't done due diligence in sitting down and reading his whole book. Um, anyway, so we could move on now. I think, however, because uh, we've gone for uh, as long as we've gone, trying to dive now into 2 Peter 3.9 would probably be a little bit of a uh, too long. So why don't we save that for next week? And, uh, you know, good good discussion in the chat room. Thank you so much, everybody, for your vast knowledge, which seems to be more vast than my knowledge on the subject. It's uh, it's nice to have, you know, I just get on here and fake it. Uh, <laughs> I read comments. That's and, all we do. Yeah, That's so, all we ever do. So, um, however, I, now I don't, this is one thing I haven't read, but I want to read this post. This is a fake Facebook post. Now, this is totally off subject. We'll give some people something who's, you know, we've had people, one person who said we need to go back to talking about messianic stuff instead of Christian doctrine. Um, whatever. That doesn't bother me at all. Um, this is interesting, though. I can tie these together in a roundabout way. You know, one thing that we see within teachers, whether you believe them to be right or not, Arminian theology and the doctrines of grace or what can be referred to as Calvinism, Calvinistic theology or the five points of Calvinistic theology. Um, If no matter what side you fall on or any scholar falls on, it greatly influences the way that they teach. That's all there is to it. If you listen to my dad, my dad believes in the five, you know, in, in, in the doctrines of grace and his teaching is obviously influenced by it. I thought that before I believed in the doctrines of grace, back when I believed in free will, I, uh, you know, I always thought, man, he's everything that he talks about is influenced that way. The same is true with those who believe in Arminian theology, such as JK McGee McKee. Uh, now I like, uh, John and the things that he has put out. I disagree with him, obviously, on his Armenian theology and his Armenian beliefs. He leans to house uh, quite a bit uh, often, even though he just put something out recently, and I didn't, uh, I didn't read the whole thing on the two house movement and why it's wrong. Um, however, even within that, uh, what the parts that I did read, anyway, that's not the the subject here. He put a post out uh, last night. And it says this, this is now I haven't read this. So I'm wondering if anybody has read this and uh, send me, uh, send me thoughts. It's 61 pages long. It's an article that's 61 pages long. This is how he introduces it on his Facebook page. I do not identify as a member of the one law slash one Torah sub movement, but I am not antagonistic toward them either. Now I didn't realize this. This shows my ignorance because I thought that uh, McKee was, was full-on One Torah. I thought that he fully supported One Torah theology. Um, But apparently I was wrong. Anyway, he says, we have points of both agreement and disagreement among ourselves. We agree that all of God's people should be submissive to his instruction, seriously considering it in their regime, uh, uh, regimen of Bible study. The Torah or Pentateuch has not been abolished but that there are some differences between Jewish and non-Jewish believers, albeit nominal in the wider scope of instruction is not always recognized, that there are significantly new spiritual dynamics between the the pre- and post-resurrection eras, and most especially the centrality of the Messiah's work tends to be a big area of difference I have between one law proponents and myself. 
I have summarized a number of my thoughts in the 2010 article, One Law for All, From the Mosaic Text to the Work of the Holy Spirit. And then he gives a link to this. As I said, this uh, these are eight and a half by 11 pages, and there are 61 of them. So this is quite a, uh, I mean, this is a, this is a small book that uh, would have to be read. But if you have, if you have read this, you know, I, uh, Mr. McKee is, uh, he's gone to school. He has a good education. He writes well, and uh, he's, a lot of the stuff that he's written, I actually completely agree with. Uh, so uh, somebody else sent this to me, though, and asked my thoughts on it, and I have not had time to, uh, <laughs> to sit down and comb through the 61 pages. So if you have ideas of what you think he's saying in here, because in some of the comments on his Facebook page, basically what I'm asking for is, uh, you know, if you've read this, your thoughts on it, uh, I probably will buckle down sometime this next week and, and read the 61 pages. But in his comments, he seems to shy away from the idea that he's, I don't know, it's, uh, it seems, I don't know if it's more shock value or if there's, because it seems like he's saying that the, the laws are for the Gentiles as well. I, I don't know. I'm, I got to sit down and read it. Anyway, I'm dr- just trying to draw some attention to this so that, uh, so that others can, can uh, you know, give comments and, and whatnot about what they think about this, as I, because I'm gonna be, hopefully I'll be reading it in the next week. All right. Anything else before we go? Nope. I, I do want to say God is good for sure. Oh, there's no doubt about uh, that. But, but no his goodness what, yeah. surpasses my ability to even uh, uh, grasp it. I, I hope to grow in my knowledge of, of him every day. No doubt. Okay, so next week we're going to look at particular redemption, but we're not just going to look at the theology itself. We're actually going to look at specific Bible passages. We will be looking at 2 Peter 3.9, 1 Timothy 4.10, Hebrews 2.9. Uh, so those are the passages that we will attempt in some way to exegete next week, uh, as they might uh, relate to particular redemption, which is another one of the five points, as they are referred to, the five points of Calvinism, or the doctrines of grace. Boy, we sure do appreciate everybody joining us in the chat room, and we also appreciate everybody who's listening uh, online or watching on YouTube, whatever it may be. We sure are humbled that people would uh, take time out of their day to listen to us. (laughs) Uh, I'm always blown away by that. So we hope that uh, you've gained something from this. We hope that you've gained something from our discussion and that you're learning something uh, and that it would be uh, put towards the glory of our our Lord in your study. Whether you agree with us or not, that you can take what we've uh, discussed and you can, you know, put it towards your study of the Word of God. But most of all, what we hope our discussions do is glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Yeshua.